Chapter Eight, Part One of Famous Stories Every Child Should Know. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Famous Stories Every Child Should Know. Edited by Hamilton Wright Maybe. Chapter Eight, Part One. The Man Without a Country by Edward Everett Hale I suppose that very few casual readers of the New York Herald of August 13, 1863 observe, in an obscure corner, among the deaths, the announcement, Nolan, died on board U.S. Corvette Levant, latitude 2 degrees 11 minutes south, longitude 131 degrees west, on the 11th of May, philip nolan i happened to observe it because i was stranded at the old mission house in mackinaw waiting for a lake superior steamer which did not choose to come and i was devouring to the very stubble all the current literature i could get hold of even down to the deaths and marriages in the herald my memory for names and people is good and the reader will see as he goes on that i had reason enough to remember philip nolan there are hundreds of readers who would have paused at that announcement if the officer of the Levant, who reported it, had chosen to make it thus, died May 11th, the man without a country. For it was as the man without a country that poor Philip Nolan had generally been known by the officers who had him in charge during some fifty years, as indeed by all the men who sailed under them. I dare say there is many a man who has taken wine with him once a fortnight in a three years' cruise, who never knew that his name was Nolan, or whether the poor wretch had any name at all. There can now be no possible harm in telling this poor creature's story. Reason enough there has been till now, ever since Madison's administration went out in 1817, for the very strict secrecy, the secrecy of honour itself, among the gentlemen of the Navy who have had Nolan in successive charge and certainly it speaks well for the esprit de corps of the profession and the personal honour of its members that to the press this man's story has been wholly unknown and i think to the country at large also i have reason to think from some investigations i made in the naval archives when i was attached to the bureau of construction that every official report relating to him was burned when ross burned the public buildings at washington one of the Tuckers, or possibly one of the Watsons, had Nolan in charge at the end of the war, and when, on returning from his cruise, he reported at Washington to one of the Crowning Shields, who was in the Navy Department when he came home, he found that the Department ignored the whole business. Whether they really knew nothing about it, or whether it was a non mira cordo, determined on as a piece of policy, I do not know. But this I do know that since 1817 and possibly before no naval officer has mentioned nolan in his report of a cruise but as i say there is no need for secrecy any longer and now the poor creature is dead it seems to me worth while to tell a little of his story by way of showing young americans of to-day what it is to be a man without a country philip nolan was as fine a young officer as there was in the legion of the west as the western division of our army was then called 
when Aaron Burr made his first dashing expedition down to New Orleans in 1805 at Fort Massac, or somewhere above on the river, he met, as the devil would have it, this gay, dashing, bright young fellow, at some dinner party, I think. Burr marked him, talked to him, walked with him, took him a day or two's voyage in his flatboat, and, in short, fascinated him. For the next year, Barrack life was very tame to poor Nolan. He occasionally availed himself of the permission the great man had given him to write to him. Long, high-worded, stilted letters the poor boy wrote, and rewrote, and copied, but never a line did he have in reply from the gay deceiver. The other boys in the garrison sneered at him, because he lost the fun which they found in shooting or rowing while he was working away on these grand letters to his grand friend. They could not understand why Nolan kept to himself while they were playing high-low jack. Poker was not yet invented. But before long the young fellow had his revenge. For this time His Excellency Honourable Aaron Burr appeared again under a very different aspect. There were rumours that he had an army behind him, and everybody supposed that he had an empire before him. At that time the youngsters all envied him. Burr had not been talking twenty minutes with the commander before he asked him to send for Lieutenant Nolan. Then, after a little talk, he asked Nolan if he could show him something of the great river and the plans for the new post. He asked Nolan to take him out in his skiff to show him a canebrake or a cottonwood tree, as he said, really to seduce him. And by the time the sail was over, Nolan was enlisted body and soul. From that time, though he did not yet know it, he lived as a man without a country. What Burr meant to do, I know no more than you, dear reader. It is none of our business just now. Only, when the grand catastrophe came, and Jefferson and the House of Virginia of that day undertook to break on the wheel all the possible clearances of the then House of York, by the great treason trial at Richmond, some of the lesser fry in that distant Mississippi Valley, which was farther from us than Puget Sound is today, introduced the like novelty on their provincial stage and to while away the monotony of the summer of fort adams got up for spectacles a string of courts-martial on the officers there one and another of the colonels and majors were tried and to fill out the list little nolan against whom heaven knows there was evidence enough that he was sick of the service had been willing to be false to it and would have obeyed any order to march any whither with any one who would follow him had the order been signed by command of his excellency a burr the courts dragged on the big flies escaped rightly for all i know nolan was proved guilty enough as i say yet you and i would never have heard of him reader but that when the president of the court asked him at the close whether he wished to say anything to show that he had always been faithful to the United States, he cried out, in a fit of frenzy, Damn the United States! I wish I may never hear of the United States again. I suppose he did not know how the word shocked old Colonel Morgan, who was holding the court. Half the officers who sat in it had served through the Revolution, and their lives, not to say their necks, had been risked for the very eye which he so cavalierly cursed in his madness. He, on his part, had grown up in the west of those days, in the midst of Spanish plot, Orleans plot, and all the rest, 
he had been educated on a plantation where the finest company was a spanish officer or a french merchant from orleans his education such as it was had been perfected in commercial expeditions to vera cruz and i think he told me his father once hired an englishman to be a private tutor for a winter on the plantation he had spent half his youth with an older brother hunting horses in texas and in a word to him united states was scarcely a reality yet he had been fed by united states for all the years since he had been in the army he had sworn on his faith as a christian to be true to the united states it was the united states which gave him the uniform he wore and the sword by his side nay my poor nolan it was only because united states had picked you out first as one of her own confidential men of honour that a burr cared for you a straw more than for the flatboat men who sailed his ark for him i do not excuse nolan i only explain to the reader why he damned his country and wished he might never hear her name again he never did hear her name but once again from that moment september twenty third eighteen o seven till the day he died may eleventh eighteen sixty three he never heard her name again for that half century and more he was a man without a country old morgan as i said was terribly shocked if nolan had compared george washington to benedict arnold or had cried god save king george morgan would not have felt worse he called the court into his private room and returned in fifteen minutes with a face like a sheet to say prisoner hear the sentence of the court the court decides subject to the approval of the president that you never hear the name of the united states again nolan laughed but nobody else laughed old morgan was too solemn and the whole room was hushed dead as night for a minute even nolan lost his swagger in a moment then morgan added mr marshall take the prisoner to orleans in an armed boat and deliver him to the naval commander there the marshal gave his orders and the prisoner was taken out of court mr marshall continued old morgan see that no one mentions the united states to the prisoner mr marshall make my respects to lieutenant mitchell at orleans and request him to order that no one shall mention the united states to the prisoner while he is on board ship you will receive your written orders from the officer on duty here this evening the court is adjourned without delay i have always supposed that colonel morgan himself took the proceedings of the court to washington city and explained them to mr jefferson certain it is that the president approved them certain that is if i may believe the men who say they have seen his signature before the nautilus got round from new orleans to the north atlantic coast with the prisoner on board the sentence had been approved and he was a man without a country the plan then adopted was substantially the same which was necessarily followed ever after perhaps it was suggested by the necessity of sending him by water from fort adams and orleans the secretary of the navy it must have been the first crowning shield though he is a man i do not remember was requested to put nolan on board a government vessel bound on a long cruise and to direct that he should only be so far confined there as to make it certain that he never saw or heard of the country we had few long cruises then and the navy was very much out of favour and as almost all of this story is traditional as i have explained i do not know certainly what his first cruise was 
but the commander to whom he was entrusted perhaps it was tingy or sure though i think it was one of the younger men we are all old enough now regulated the etiquette and precautions of the affair and according to his scheme they were carried out i suppose till nolan died when i was second officer of the intrepid some thirty years after i saw the original paper of instructions i have been sorry ever since that i did not copy the whole of it it ran however much in this way washington with a date which must have been late in eighteen o seven sir you will receive from lieutenant neal the person of philip nolan later lieutenant in the united states army this person on his trial by court-martial expressed with an oath the wish that he might never hear of the united states again the court sentenced him to have his wish fulfilled for the present the execution of the order is entrusted by the president to this department you will take the prisoner on board your ship and keep him there with such precautions as shall prevent his escape you will provide him with such quarters rations and clothing as would be proper for an officer of his late rank if he were a passenger on your vessel on the business of his government the gentlemen on board will make any arrangements agreeable to themselves regarding his society he is to be exposed to no indignity of any kind nor is he ever unnecessarily to be reminded that he is a prisoner but under no circumstances is he ever to hear of his country or to see any information regarding it and you will especially caution all the officers under your command to take care that in the various indulgences which may be granted this rule in which his punishment is involved shall not be broken it is the intention of the government that he shall never again see the country which he has disowned before the end of your cruise you will receive orders which will give effect to this intention respectfully yours w southard for the secretary of the navy if i had only preserved the whole of this paper there would be no break in the beginning of my sketch of this story for captain shaw if it were he handed it to his successor in the charge and he to his and i suppose the commander of the levant has it to-day as his authority for keeping this man in his mild custody the rule adopted on board the ships from which i have met the man without a country was i think transmitted from the beginning no mess liked to have him permanently because his presence cut off all talk of home or the prospect of return of politics or letters of peace or of war cut off more than half the talk men like to have at sea but it was always thought too hard that he should never meet the rest of us except to touch hats and we finally sank into one system he was not permitted to talk with the men unless an officer was by with officers he had an unrestrained intercourse as far as they and he chose but he grew shy though he had favourites i was one then the captain always asked him to dinner on monday every mess in succession took up the invitation on its turn according to the size of the ship you had him in your mess more or less often at dinner his breakfast he ate in his own stateroom he always had a stateroom which was where a sentinel or somebody on watch could see the door and whatever else he ate or drank he ate or drank alone sometimes when the marines or sailors had any special jollification they were permitted to invite plain buttons as they called him 
Then Nolan was sent with some officer, and the men were forbidden to speak of home while he was there. I believe the theory was that the sight of his punishment did them good. They called him plain buttons because, while he always chose to wear a regulation army uniform, he was not permitted to wear the army button for the reason that it bore either the initials or the insignia of the country he had disowned. I remember, soon after I joined the Navy, I was on shore with some of the older officers from our ship, and from the Brandywine, which we had met at Alexandria. We had leave to make a party and go up to Cairo and the pyramids. As we jogged along, we went on donkeys then, some of the gentlemen, we boys called them dons, but the phrase was long since changed, fell to talking about Nolan, and someone told the system which was adopted from the first about his books and other reading. As he was almost never permitted to go on shore, even though the vessel lay in port for months, his time at the best hung heavy, and everybody was permitted to lend him books, if they were not published in America and made no allusion to it. These were common enough in the old days, when people in the other hemisphere talked of the United States as little as we do of Paraguay. He had almost all the foreign papers that came into the ship sooner or later, only somebody must go over them first and cut out any advertisement or stray paragraph that alluded to America. This was a little cruel sometimes, when the back of what was cut out might be as innocent as Hesiod. Right in the midst of one of Napoleon's battles, or one of Canning's speeches, poor Nolan would find a great hole, because on the back of the page of that paper there had been an advertisement of a packet for New York, or a scrap from the President's message. I say this was the first time I ever heard of this plan, which afterwards I had enough and more than enough to do with. I remember it because poor Phillips, who was of the party, as soon as the allusion to reading was made, told a story of something which happened at the Cape of Good Hope on Nolan's first voyage, and it is the only thing I ever knew of that voyage. They had touched at the Cape, and had done the civil thing with the English admiral and the fleet, and then leaving for a long cruise up the Indian Ocean, Phillips had borrowed a lot of English books from an officer, which in those days, as indeed in these, was quite a windfall. Among them, as the devil would order, was the Lay of the Last Minstrel, which they had all of them heard of, but which most of them had never seen. I think it could not have been published long. Well, nobody thought there could be any risk of anything national in that, though Phillips swore Old Shaw had cut out The Tempest from Shakespeare before he let Nolan have it, because he said the Bermudas ought to be ours and, by Jove, should be one day. So Nolan was permitted to join the circle one afternoon when a lot of them sat on deck smoking and reading aloud. People do not do such things so often now, but when I was young we got rid of a great deal of time so. Well, so it happened that in his turn Nolan took the book and read to the others, and he read very well, as I know. Nobody in the circle knew a line of the poem, only it was all magic and border chivalry and was ten thousand years ago. Poor Nolan read steadily through the fifth canto, stopped a minute and drank something, and then began, without a thought of what was coming, Breathe there a man with soul so dead, who never to himself had said. It seems impossible to us that anybody ever heard this for the first time, but all these fellows did then, and poor Nolan himself went on, still unconsciously or mechanically. 
This is my own, my native land. Then they all saw that something was to pay, but he expected to get through, I suppose, turned a little pale, but plunged on. Whose heart hath ne'er within him burned, as home his footsteps he hath turned, from wandering on a foreign strand? If such there breathe, go, mark him well. By this time the men were all beside themselves, wishing there was any way to make him turn over two pages, but he had not quite presence of mind for that. He gagged a little, coloured crimson, and staggered on. For him no minstrel raptures swell. High though his titles, proud his name, boundless his wealth, as wish can claim. Despite these titles, power and pelf, the wretch concentred all in self. And here the poor fellow choked, could not go on, but started up, swung the book into the sea, vanished into his stateroom, and by jove said phillips we did not see him for two months again and i had to make up some beggarly story to that english surgeon why i did not return his walter scott to him that story shows about the time when nolan's brocadocio must have broken down at first they said he took a very high tone considered his imprisonment a mere farce affected to enjoy the voyage and all that but phillips said that after he came out of his stateroom he never was the same man again he never read aloud again unless it was the bible or shakespeare or something else he was sure of but it was not that merely he never entered in with the other young men exactly as their companion again he was always shy afterwards when i knew him very seldom spoke unless he was spoken to except to a very few friends he lighted up occasionally i remember late in his life hearing him fairly eloquent on something which had been suggested to him by one of Flechier's sermons, but generally he had the nervous, tired look of a heart-wounded man. When Captain Shaw was coming home, if, as I say, it was Shaw, rather to the surprise of everybody, they made one of the Windward Islands, and lay off and on for nearly a week. The boys said the officers were sick of salt junk, and meant to have turtle soup before they came home but after several days the warren came to the same rendezvous they exchanged signals she sent to phillips and these homeward bound men letters and papers and told them she was outward bound perhaps to the mediterranean and took poor nolan and his traps on the boat back to try his second cruise he looked very blank when he was told to get ready to join her he had known enough of the signs of the sky to know that till that moment he was going home but this was a distinct evidence of something he had not thought of, perhaps, that there was no going home for him, even to a prison, and this was the first of some twenty such transfers, which brought him sooner or later into half our best vessels, but which kept him all his life at least some hundred miles from the country he had hoped he might never hear of again. It may have been on that second cruise, it was once when he was up in the Mediterranean, that Mrs. Graff, the celebrated southern beauty of those days, danced with him. They had been lying a long time in the Bay of Naples, and the officers were very intimate in the English fleet, and there had been great festivities, and our men thought they must give a great ball on board the ship. How they ever did it on board Warren, I'm sure I do not know. Perhaps it was not the Warren, or perhaps ladies did not take up so much room as they do now. They wanted to use Nolan's stateroom for something, and they hated to do it without asking him to the ball, so the captain said they might ask him, 
if they would be responsible that he did not talk with the wrong people, who would give him intelligence. So the dance went on, the finest party that had ever been known, I dare say, for I never heard of a man-of-war ball that was not. For ladies, they had the family of the American consul, one or two travellers who had adventured so far, and a nice bevy of English girls and matrons, perhaps Lady Hamilton herself. Well, different officers relieved each other in standing and talking with Nolan in a friendly way, so as to be sure that nobody else spoke to him. The dancing went on with spirit, and after a while even the fellows who took this honorary guard of Nolan's ceased to fear any contretemps. Only when some English lady, Lady Hamilton, as I said, perhaps, called for a set of American dances, an odd thing happened. Everybody then danced contra-dances. The black band, nothing loath, conferred as to what American dances were, and started off with Virginia Reel, which they followed with Monkey Musk, which in its turn in those days should have been followed by the old thirteen. But just as Dick, the leader, tapped for his fiddles to begin and bent forward about to say in true negro state the old thirteen gentlemen and ladies as he had said virginie reel if you please and monkey musk if you please the captain's boy tapped him on the shoulder whispered to him and he did not announce the name of the dance he merely bowed began on the air and they all fell to the officers teaching the english girls the figure but not telling them why it had no name End of chapter 8, part 1